Hello again and welcome to the Good Time Show. And now on episode 3. Yes, and on episode 3 we had some amazing guests. We had, you know, Mark and Reeson and Steven Sonofsky who've been with us the last couple of episodes as well, but today we also interviewed a very special one of our favorite founders, founder and CEO of Coinbase. and he had some great stories to tell so shriram what did we cover today do you think this might be the spiciest episode we have done so probably far? i think we are probably going to get canceled there we go this might be the last episode of the good time show but no arthi's right uh, brian came ready to play you know we got into everything we got into the current crypto market mm-hmm. we got into the now infamous mission driven company memo from coinbase and brian just went super deep was very open you know probably just an amazing segment there but also you know what it meant for the coinbase to go public what he sees in the future of crypto just all sorts of things in here it is really inspiring especially you know if for folks who are looking at startups being an entrepreneur founding companies i personally thought it was very inspiring for from a founder standpoint so i really hope that you'll enjoy this as well enjoy Live from San Francisco. It's the Good Time Show. And now your hosts, Arty and Shriram. You're back. This uh, is our third show. Third show in a row. We yeah. made it. Yeah, third time's a charm. Who are we? Uh well, I'm Shriram and this I'm is- Arty and uh this is a good time show for folks who are joining us for the first time. Welcome. We do this show. We've been doing this for about 18 months and we generally we believe in, you know, optimistic stories of technology of founders of people building things and we've had a huge great time just like pulling together some really interesting guests last week we had some great guests talking about crypto among other things and we do this a couple times a week or so and so this time no exception we have this amazing crew of people shriram who do we have here tonight okay Well, like I said, you know, it's been a blast to do the show and you know, we want to kind of hear your thoughts and comments or so hit us up and it, this is I think an episode by popular demand and you know, first I want to introduce a couple of people who fans of the show uh, know very well. First off, we have Mr. Hardcore Software himself, Steven Sanofsky, who needs no introduction, but if you do need one, he has probably a 10,000 word blog post for you. And next up Thank we you. have um I'm good. <laughs> And next up we have Mr. Current Thing Mark Andreessen and Mark there with Oh his... wait we got to ask this Mark what are you drinking tonight What are you drinking Tonight we are having the legendary Johnny Walker Black 12 year We'll see whether I'm the only person drinking this tonight or not <laughs> Well okay so Mark gave me a lot of shit before the show said because I, he found that I've never actually had whiskey of any kind which is true and so I Mark I went out and got this and at some time you know maybe during tonight's episode or a future episode depending on how badly it goes or how well it goes yeah this shall be consumed uh, i do not know how many terms of services that we will be violating but we will find out so yeah i'm going to keep this right here and you know it's going to be a checkhouse gun slash you know glass we'll get to it later wait wait a minute is it have you opened it No. Uh, no, I actually couldn't even figure out how to order it. Like I actually had to go figure out how to actually get it delivered and then somebody actually had to it be show the ID card which is a whole thing. So it it is not been open. So it's not yet open. So you haven't really thought through the logistics of how you're going to drink it, which leads me to think you probably don't have a glass. So your first time <laughs> drinking whiskey is going to be shotgunning it out of the bottle? Probably yes, probably yes. All right. 
Um, and last but not least, you know, our guest of honor, and you know, this is somebody you know who I think really needs no introduction at all, but has been like a great friend to all of us. And with everything which is going going on in the world of crypto, you know, we could really think of like nobody better to come and talk to us about what is happening in the world of crypto and Web three, but also you know the world of startups and tech. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one, the only Brian Armstrong. Woo! And I think <laughs> Brian so. sometimes for having me. Could actually you went and got some wine or delivered, I think. You might have seen him like run out and dark. So Brian, Brian's in a wine. in a hotel room and you got yourself yeah. a glass of wine. Yes, uh, they delivered Stephen, it moments before actually while we had already started. So all part of the live the live show here. There wow. we go. You know, this is kind of a new thing, but I think the show might be like <laughs> the theme of the show might be like just get drunk yeah. progressively yeah. over time. And uh, so it might be a hook to, for, for folks who are watching, stay on a little bit later because who knows what any of these people will open up and say, we'll find out. But no, seriously, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. And, you know, let's just get right into it. You know, so we have a lot of stuff to go through today. You yeah. know, we're going to talk about Web3. We're going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about crypto Twitter. We're going to talk about a bunch of amazing stuff that Coinbase has been working on. But I think like, you know, the, the thing which is on a lot of people's minds is, really the state of the crypto market and especially what's been happening the last few weeks and i was very particularly interested in asking you this because you have been around in crypto for i guess like over a decade now and you've sort of seen multiple cycles and not just kind of seen it but you know been a founder been a ceo and whether it's you know really kind of like hard tough times you know in previous cycles so I'm curious to get your take on, you know, for people who this might be the kind of the first time they've seen prices drop, you know, how should they think about this? How does this compare to your previous experiences? Just give us some color. Yeah, well, let's see. Every time you go through your first crypto drop, it can be really scary. I remember the first time that I actually went out and bought Bitcoin. I think it was at like nine or ten dollars and I was it promptly crashed about two dollars after that. And I thought I was such an idiot buying in at those prices. So I guess one of the lessons here is that, you know, even if you buy at the exact worst time at the exact peak, you know, as long as you kind of hold through the next cycle, you typically end up, you know, two to five X higher in the next one. And there's a lot of people, basically they panic at the bottom or they buy at the top and you kind of want to be doing the opposite of, I guess, what the herds are doing at that time. So as a CEO going through building a crypto company, we've, we've been through about four of these cycles now, and I try to always zoom out and just try to think longer term. So it's never as good as it seems when everyone's saying that you're a genius and it's never as bad as it seems when everyone's saying that crypto is over. And every time people declare yeah. crypto is dead and it never ends up being true. And so there's really an art to just tuning out all the noise. I think this last cycle was kind of interesting in the sense that the price was kind of bumbling up over the last couple of years, you know, from 30K up to almost 70K or so. And yeah. we didn't see the price kind of go vertical at the very end where we've seen that in, in past cycles. There's a complete irrational exuberance before it crashes down. And so I guess in this case, maybe the broader economy crashed and that sort of brought crypto down with it. You know, I have to say I was I was probably op too optimistic. I was thinking that crypto in, in this moment was actually going to be sort of an inflation hedge. And because that's what clients were telling us, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they were putting some more of it on their balance sheet our institutional clients as an right. inflation hedge. So I, I thought maybe in this inflationary environment, we'd actually see crypto continue to do pretty well, almost maybe even money would flee to it in times of uncertainty, like gold or something like that. But it turned out to be totally not the case. So I, I was wrong on that. Maybe we need to have all of crypto five or 10 X from here to an inflation hedge when the broader uh, macro environment gets into these kinds of conditions. So anyway, we're going to weather this one just like all the rest. And uh, we do that just by, you know, maintaining balance 
and managing costs and growing very deliberately. And then we always emerge stronger out the other side. So hopefully it'll happen again here. And and what do you, you know, especially for founders who are getting into crypto, you know, you're seeing a lot of people just pick up Web3 tech, start to build with it. What do you have to say to them, you know, for as they think about quote unquote crypto winter going into this whole thing again for the first ever time, if they're doing it, what do you have to say as like advice or what should, how should founders think about it? Yeah, I mean, so as a founder, I would not really try to time the market, whether it's up or down or whatever. Like if, if you just, if it's, you have you like, you have a co-founder you like, you know, you have some money you've raised, whatever, just like, just, just keep building. It doesn't ignore all this stuff, yeah. you know, whether it's up or down. A lot of the best companies have been built in down markets. It tends to clear out people that are, who are there for the wrong reasons. In up markets, it's easier to raise money, but I'd say it kind of is almost like a washes out to uh, net roughly average. So just keep building and, and, you know, probably in a couple of years, it'll be going the other direction. So try to raise money when things are good and hold on to cash when things are down. And, and, and if you do that, it'll all work out over like a 10 year period. I, I'm going to steal a line from, you know, my partner, uh, Chris Dixon, who I think everyone here knows super well. And he has this kind of theory about like financial cycles in crypto versus kind of product innovation cycles in crypto and how they don't actually overlap. And you know what usually winds up happening is you get a new bunch of new people coming in, building new interesting applications, software, and that leads to, you know, in some ways, the next price boom. You know, one thing actually, yeah. you know, you know, out, even getting outside of crypto, you know, I've been talking to a lot of founders, you know, some I work with, some I don't. And for a lot of them, and a lot of these folks are not crypto founders, this is the first time that they have seen a market downturn. Mm-hmm. And these are founders who are sometimes early stage, sometimes a later stage. And, you know, and it's hard, you know, because all of a sudden you have employees coming to you and they're saying, hey, you know, what is my RSU's worth? Or, you know, maybe I should go take that offer from, you know, some established public company. And, you know, and I think you are like a very interesting person here because, you know, like when Coinbase went through some of these previous downturns, you know, and last week we had like Dan Romero on the show yeah. who was talking about this. Uh, it was really hard. Right. And, you know, I think now we know these crypto tech cycles come and go at the time. It may not have been like so clear, like several years ago. Yeah. So how was it for you as a founder to go through that? I mean, people left, you know, people are like, hey, is crypto here to stay? All of this obviously kind of seems silly in retrospect now. But how was it for you kind of emotionally to kind of go through that? Because I think sort of founders are going what you went through now, but for the very first time. Yeah, that's such a good point. And Dan Romero's great. He was an early Coinbase employee, so he got to see a lot of this firsthand as well. But, you know, I think there were some really dark periods there where uh, I remember in just before the run up to 2017, there was probably like a almost three year stretch where crypto was just down and nothing was happening. And I think mm-hmm. Coinbase had I remember I think we had like 25 percent attrition in one year. People were just disillusioned, you know, they were just seeing negative headline after negative headline after negative headline. And they it let they let it get to them. They, it wore them down and it changed their thinking. I remember I went to this conference. It was like this money conference or something like that. And there was a New York Times reporter there who was interviewing me. And, and literally his question was like, well, now that Bitcoin's dead, what are you going to do next? And I was thinking in my head, like, <laughs> what do you mean? It's like not dead at all. Um, New York just, Times gets going it through right the next again. cycle. Right. So... <laughs> There's definitely an art to managing your own psychology here, because, again, when things are running up, they, they, all the all the buzz is there optimistically telling you how great you are and all this stuff. And so you have to ignore that stuff, too, to be able to when in the down cycle. They're telling you that you're an idiot or it's over. I, I guess it's you could call it independent mind, like independent thinking. Right. I mean, you want to always be open minded and listening to people. You don't want to be completely isolated yeah. or dogmatic or something like that. But 
you also want to be stubborn enough to just ignore the haters, basically. And it's really, this is something that was very counterintuitive to me, having started a company. I, I sort of assumed that whether the company would work or not, people would generally be rooting for me because, you know, we're trying to build yeah. something in the world that's like good for people. right? And so yeah. I, I thought people yeah. would generally be rooting for us, even if, even if they didn't think we would be successful. It turns out that's not the case. There's actually a surprising number of people in society who are almost like rooting for you to fail. And it's not just us. It's, it's really anybody doing anything. You could take like sort of the most, you know, extreme, positive, good for thing for society thing you could think of. Like I have a friend who started this charity that's just like donating money to homeless people in San Francisco, right? And she told me, I was like, well, you, you definitely don't have haters, right? Like, you know, crypto is controversial or something. No, she's like, what are you talking about? We have tons of haters. I was like, how could you have any haters? You're, you're literally donating money to homeless people. And she's like, we have all these people who think that what we're doing is, or I don't know, they had like a million theories. And so it kind of made me realize no matter what you do, you're going to piss off half the people. And so you should basically just do whatever you think is the best thing, because you, if you ever try to make other people happy, you're never going to be able to do it. That is crazy. Good advice. Uh, good, good advice, but also crazy uh, to have your friend go through that. I mean, it's I think kind of a te testament to kind of you and kind of you know your mental fortitude, kind of like weather through that. And you know, and do you think it made? How do you think kind of convert transform the company? Like you know, because sometimes when people go through this, they feel like the company comes out on the other end stronger, you know, leaner, and you know, maybe people kind of like really believe in the vision. Like, how do you think that maybe changed Coinbase to go through like the 2016, 2017 era? Yeah. So I mean, a lot of a lot of peer companies we had at that time, they were basically pivoting. They were, it was fashionable at that time to go build blockchain, not Bitcoin. There was mm -hmm. pressure for us, you know, not, not for us directly, but for everybody in the industry to sort of go build software for banks. They were all kind of looking for a pivot. And I remember thinking at that time, you know, people tell me sometimes like, how did you know you had such passion? You, you just knew crypto was going to come back. I mean, I hoped that it would come back, but the real, I think the real truthful answer was like, if we were going to have to pivot to build software for banks, I would have rather just shut the company down and give the money back because that's not why I got into this. Like I, I wanted to create freedom in the world and I thought crypto was a really great tool to do that. So I wasn't just looking for some to build a successful company. I was trying to do something a little bit more mission driven. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep going at this as long as we have ideas of what to build next. If, if we're literally sitting around here after a couple of years and it's like, does anybody have any good ideas left? And we have, nobody has any good ideas. Then it's like, okay, maybe that's a moment where you would think about like returning the capital and, and just trying something else because there is a time value to money. But I think most startups, they actually actually give up way too soon. That's the deal. I've almost never seen a company that, that waited too long. Most of the time, you know, the, they have some co-founder fighting or they pivot after three months because like the first thing they tried didn't work. Like basically the first thing that we've tried never works. I've never seen a product like you launch. Everybody loves it from day one. That's usually something with 2020 hindsight, people look back and, and it's like a story that some of the later employees perceive it to be that way. But most of the first product launches that you do, just nobody likes it. And you and you have to kind of iterate and iterate and iterate to find, to find product market fit. So I don't know, Paul Graham always likes to say that is, is like determination is actually the number one skill in entrepreneurship. It's not, I think there was people who were, they were smarter than me. They were better at raising money than me. They were better at recruiting. You know, we were always just kind of like really dog-headed and <laughs> pig-headed and, and determined <laughs> almost to an unreasonable degree. And so I've liked, I, I like to try to cultivate that mindset within Coinbase too, is like this, this concept of resilience and run through brick walls. And because it happens all the time, like you're trying to create some product and there's a million reasons why it doesn't work, right? The, the technology problems, legal problems, like people problems, sales problems. And so Oftentimes, you just have to find these people that are that are willing to sort of take some complex, messy, hairy thing and just 
find a way through, like run through the brick wall and pull off these heroic efforts. And that's kind of the only way that anything innovative happens in my view. It, I, I'm not aware of any kind of really innovative project that wasn't just kind of moving from one setback to the next with enthusiasm to, to finally somehow get through it. Yeah, I think, you know, Mark, I think you talked about this a couple episodes ago. You talked about the idea maze and how, you know, that's one thing that you see in mm -hmm. founders. I, I think Mark also has got a theory on this, Mark, because I think, Mark, one of your theories is that startups, you know, just don't die and good things will wind up happening to you over long periods of time. In fact, I remember this very, very well, because I think in my first ever week at ACCNZ, we had this offsite and Mark kind of gave this whole speech on it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, and start just kind of surviving and not dying? Yeah, I mean, let me just start with a disclaimer, just in case we haven't officially registered it, which is nothing we're talking about is investment advice. Nothing we're talking about is price forecast. Certainly nothing that, yes. So just uh, make sure we cover that. Yeah, so look, I, I, so my big conclusion, you know, coming up now in 30 years in the industry and kind of watching it, you know, for even another decade before that is basically that all of the ideas work. And, and, the, the, and, and that sounds like, it sounds like that can't possibly be true, but let me describe what I mean, which is basically all of the new ideas that smart people come up with in tech, like they, they basically all happen. It's like, and you could just, you, you run down, you run down the list of all the stuff we have today. And it's all stuff that people thought would, would never work. And then it worked. And then there's all this stuff, you know, today that people think is, you know, going to work and they're skeptics. And I, I think it's basically all going to work. And I, I think the basic reason for that is because, you know, the smart people working on this stuff are actually really smart. And the use cases are actually pretty obvious. They're, they're, they're actually not big, not big reaches. Like if, you know, if, if when Brian describes, you know, the, the vision for, for Coinbase and for, for crypto and, and Bitcoin, it's just, it's fairly obvious, at least to me, that, that mm -hmm. these things are all going to happen. Then there's like this just massive, you know, question number one, which is like, okay, when, right? And, and, and that's, and that's the, you know, that's the devil. That's, you know, that's the devil in the details, right? Which is like, it, you know, things may happen now, they may happen five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, sometimes things take 40, 50 years, but, but they still do happen. I mean, look, artificial intelligence, right? Artificial intelligence, people started working on artificial intelligence in like 1944, mm -hmm. and it really started to work in 2012, right? And so that, you know, that's, that's maybe a, you know, sort of spectacular kind of long-term case. You know, smartphone, I always point to the smartphone. The first smartphone I, that I'm aware of was shipped actually in 1982 by Radio Shack. And then you had a sequence of products that, you know, that worked to some degree before you had the iPhone in 2007. You know, the internet was invented in, in you know, essentially in the 1970s, and then it, it took off in the 1990s. And so, so there, there is this timing thing. And, we, you know, we could, we could talk a great length about that. But, you know, that, that's a big unknown. Um, and then look, there is the micro thing. I would, Sri Ram, I would, I would not, I would not quite say what you said, which is stay alive, and then eventually good things will happen. Like that, that, that's that's too optimistic. But, but, but the the way I would word it is, I guess the way we we think about it inside our firms is like our responsibility number one with our companies is to try to keep them alive for as long as possible. And and the, and the mm -hmm. reason for that is that it's buying option value against this puzzle of time. Right. And so, and, and look, lots of startups don't work. Lots of projects don't work. You know, your project might not work. Our project might not work. You know, generally speaking, if things don't work, if, if a startup doesn't work in the first five, six, seven, eight years, like it might not work. Like the, it, it, there is like a statute of limitations on these things. And at some point you can, you can kind of lose the coherence of the team. And, and you do often see this thing where it's multiple generations of startups before you get to the one that works. But by far, the, the, the best way to optimize the chances of success is to, is to basically buy time, like, it, like keep working on the project mm -hmm. and, then, and, then, and then buy time for as long as you can. And so and I, and I, as has passed, you know, to Brian's point, what, we, what we've discovered is very much what he said, which is determination, or as, as we put it, courage is the key attribute. And if you can stay in market, you can stay in business, you can keep refining. You know, I guess one other thing I'd add is it, 
the stories of like the instant hit are like the viral stories. They're the ones you always hear about. A lot of the really big successes in tech have been things that just had a, uh, had a slow burn up front. Like it just took time to get them mm-hmm. to work and then they took off. And, and then the stories are kind of retcon later to kind of, you know, erase the years of, of, of sort of slog yeah. uh, to get there because nobody wants to talk about that. But, you know, it, it, the overnight successes are actually often the result of a decade or more of work. And I, I think that's always worth uh, bearing in mind. Mark, I wanted to pick up on one thing you said, which was about how how the ideas take so long and don't really work super well early on. The, the example you gave of AI is a really interesting one because if you do go back 50, 60 years or whatever you, and follow the arc, it's not even that it's this monotonically increasing capability over time. You know, the, like the AI example, you know, which we all know super well, you know, like it, it was not just that it didn't work. There were a bunch of people explaining why it would never work that everything was all wrong and that it was just ridiculous. Like the examples of, of just machine translation is such a fascinating one because the original demos were all paid for the Defense Department. They did a huge demo with all the MIT people and it got it all wrong. And there's all these famous apocryphal quotes that they translated incorrectly from Russian and Mandarin and stuff. And, and here we are now where we could have a lot of translation running at the bottom of our screen for every speaker into 80 different languages. Right. And so I, I, I wonder how that, I, I just, it's interesting to think how that applies to this sort of web two, web three conflict going on now. Yeah, well, as you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. so the AI story, the AI story is like a multi-part story, right? It's a story basically of, there, there was algorithm work, right? There's sort of three big legs of the stool. There was algorithm work, right? Which took a very long time. And people actually came up with neural networks, you know, you know I don't know what, when was the first neural network? 59. The 80s? That 19, it was 1959 in that first conference. <laughs> okay, all the way back. Okay, so neural networks from 1959, <laughs> right? And then, and, then, and then all the way to like 2012 when image rec- In 2012 was like the crossover point that we talk about. It's the point where the, the image recognition, uh, uh, computers started to be able to recognize objects and images better than humans could. And so it was like 1959 to 2012. So, so algorithm progress took a, you know, took a long time. They had, the, they had the original algorithm up front, but they, they, there was a lot of refinement advances that had to be made um, along the way. And then there was the data advances, which is it just turned out you just needed a ton of data to, to train these things. And then there was hardware advances. Advances. It just turned out you needed really hardware, and you know, <laughs> I don't even know. Did they even have chips in 1959? I think that was still pre-chip, <laughs> um, right, right, right? It was certainly you know pre-integrated microprocessor, and so you know, it, you had to get to the point. It turned out in retrospect where you got to you know GPUs and massively parallel compute at very low prices, and and all these you know all these kind of advanced supercomputing technologies to get to the point where you can do what people do today. So, so there, there were just, there were all of these things that had to fall into place. Another thing I think we talked about last time, but there's this great documentary, this company, General Magic, which basically was the iPhone in 1992. And it was another one of these stories where they basically, they had the vision, they actually had the product, but like the network wasn't fast enough. The screen wasn't good enough. The battery didn't last long enough, right? There were like eight different things that they didn't have at that point that we're holding the idea. So crypto is really interesting. You know, if you're listening to this, you might think, okay, smart guy, like, you know, this is all great. You've got all these stories of things take 30, 40, 50 years, but like crypto is, you know, only new since whatever, you know, 2015 or whatever, you know, like, is this going to take another 30 years? And so the interesting thing about crypto on this point, one of the reasons why I'm so confident in what we're doing is crypto actually has one of these multi-decade backstories, right? So, so, so crypto is not a new thing in the last five years. It, you know, the, the Bitcoin white paper was a big breakthrough and sort of the, the, the sort of creation of this modern blockchain idea that was in 20, 2009. So that was 13 years ago. 
But that was the result of an enormous amount of work in cryptographic software and algorithms that basically happened right over the preceding two decades. And you know, you guys mm-hmm. are probably all aware there was a guy, Dave, who was actually Eric Schmidt's office mate at Berkeley, UC, uh, UC Berkeley in the in the seventies and eighties. I mean, he was working on so-called digital gold and digital money all the way back in the what the early to mid eighties. And then if you trace even further back, you know, cryptography, you know, cryptocurrency, crypto blockchain built on top of cryptography. And of course, modern cryptography goes back to like what the 1960s, 1970s in its modern form. And so, you know, it is one of these things where it does, it, it, it goes to the idea maze thing. There is this 40 or 50 year backstory already in place of all of this incredibly rich development and all of these incredible technical advances that have already taken place. And so, so in some ways, what's happening with crypto today is like the culmination of these decades of work by all these yeah. incredibly smart people kind of coming together. And, and, and it's just, it's like I said, like it's, it's our whole of things, which is like, look, if there's a lot of really smart people that have been going deep into something for a very long period of time and, and doing the really hard work and learning from each other and building on top of each other, you know, over the course of decades, like historically in our industry, those things all work. So Mark, I think this is going to be an interesting segue into something I want to bring up later, but this might be why do you think Web3 makes so many people mad on Twitter? Especially people from the Web2 world. Are you now, referring remember, to anybody in particular? Broadcast live and live forever on the internet. <laughs> is this is, is this a family show? <laughs> so there's, a, there's a particular individual yeah, yeah. that Sri Ram has in mind. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see if we can get a little Johnny Walker in him and see if he'll see, see if he'll name him. So look, there's this. Yeah. So look, every single new thing I've ever been involved in that ended up being a big deal basically got a certain level of it got a, a, an enormous amount of skepticism. And I, you know, I could go on all night. You know, kind of on, on examples, all the all the experts saying all the all the reasons why things can't work. You know, this this used to puzzle me. Oh, and then as Sri Ram says, like a lot of times, what you have is you have this effect where somebody who is very successful in the previous paradigm of technology, right? It was a real innovator, really thought forward, right? And really made something new happen. You know, the next paradigm comes along, the next thing comes along. And for some reason, they just like turn negative and sur- surly and angry. And, you know, it's, almost, it's weird. It's almost like preemptively bitter. And they just want to like make a name for themselves that they're the person who's just going to crap all over the new thing and kind of prove that it can't work. And it's and it's, it's, it's always so weird for me because it's like, okay, like you went through that yourself. You, you literally had to fight through that yourself for your thing. So why would you become, you know, the person who, who, who was, you know, who, who you literally experienced like crapping all, all over your thing. And so, so this used to puzzle me when I discovered this, you know, the, the legendary British science fiction author, Douglas, Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In a, in a later book, he, he wrote uh, the quote, I'll read it. He said, I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reactions to technologies. It's in it's three rules. Rule number one, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary. And it's just a natural part of the way the world works, Right. World num- rule number two, anything that's invented when you're 15 and 35 years old is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it, right? And then rule number three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things, right? And, and it's right, like unholy and to be condemned. Just, what I've just concluded is like, I think he was right. Now, he actually pens it to chronological age. Fortunately for him, he's no longer with us, so he can't be canceled for ageism. I will actively uncancel myself for ageism by saying, look, he's... <laughs> 15 to 35. I don't think it's an issue of chronological age. I think it's an issue of, it's almost like quite literally like mental age, right? Or like creative age, right? It's, 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 it's a choice, right? It's, it's, it's basically, it's a choice in everybody's life as to whether or not they want to be open-minded about new things. And so this sort of phenomenon that he identifies at a certain point, I don't, I don't think it's tied to chronolo- chronological age. In fact, I, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, I've had the pleasure over the, over the years of knowing a lot of people who in this industry who, you know, get to their seven, you know, 60s, 70s, 
you know, sometimes 90s and still retain, you know, very open minds and are involved in lots of new projects. And so I don't think this is a chronological, yeah. chronological age thing. But there's definitely a mental a mental age thing that kicks in where people just decide they're just not going to have new things. You know, I, I think it's, you know, at, like at some point it's between them and their therapist. Just quickly, I guess I was just thinking about neural networks back to our earlier conversation, which is, you know, you basically have these paths through the network, which become weighted higher and higher. And I guess, you know, people make these analogies to like the water flowing down a mountain and it kind of makes a deeper and deeper groove or something like that. And so, you know, I wonder if it is, I think you're right. Some people are less susceptible to this. They seem to be able to make new new paths and new grooves throughout their life. But I think th there could be something genetic or biological about this where you basically your neural net just ossifies and you just fall into deeper and deeper grooves. And so I always think about that <laughs> as, a, as I become an older person, how do I make sure I don't just repeat the same grooves? And, you know, you can like, sometimes you travel to a new country and you're just like, oh, like everything is the people drive on the left instead of the right. Like, why was it always, it didn't always have to be on the right. Like there's no, it's totally arbitrary. And I, I, I think that's a very fascinating subject is like, how do you make sure your mind stays open? Yeah, that's right. By, by the way, I have on this, I uh, which is slightly, slightly less charitable than, you know, Brian's theory, which I think it's, in some ways, I think it's kind of like a struggle for status. Uh, more than anything else, like if your status was tied to being innovative and being cutting edge, you know, like 10 years ago, and, you know, as kind of like part of Web2, and all of a sudden you run the risk of no longer being the cool kids around, you know, I think that can be threatening. And by the way, this has nothing to do with a lot of, I think, very legitimate criticisms, a lot of things where, you know, crypto is very early or has to overcome, there's a lot of technology to be built. I think pretty much anybody in the world of Web3 will tell you this, we are still in the beginning innings and stages. But I think there's a heart of it that is, I think some of this, you know, is motivated by, hey, we are no longer the cool new upstarts and we are... So it's insecurity. Legacy and incumbents. Yeah. So I, the, the, I don't know. Uh, so I, I'm going to Brian, does it ever bother you? Do you ever feel like, damn it, I'm going to take like a big swig of wine and I'm going to tweet what Mark might tweet if he was, you know... I mean, yeah, it, it does bother me sometimes. I mean, there's times where I feel like I was... I was like, oh, we're on top of the world. We're so innovative. And then, you know, crypto goes down and suddenly nobody really cares about crypto for a couple of years. And this this happened in the past. And, you know, I, I sort of got uninvited from fancy conferences and, you know, my security guard didn't have to follow me around anymore because nobody really cared who I was and, you know, stuff like that. So in those moments, you, do, you definitely have to kind of like look inward and I guess get your validation in life from something else, your work or your your friends or your dog or whatever. But Stephen, I, I cut you off earlier. I, you should jump in. Yeah, oh. Stephen, what were you saying? No, I, it's one thing that I, I think is 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 just super interesting about about all this is how how people get they the big part of it is how they look at the new technology and this idea that they have to tear down and this whole that Twitter in particular, but technical people as well are very very good at is sort of decomposing any new technology into its components and then explaining away how each component just can never ever work. Like I, I thought that all the the first dot-com bubbles were decomposed this way. Like you'll never be able to do home delivery of groceries because of this and this and this and this. And as Mark knows, like the world's experts in delivery were the ones explaining how that couldn't happen. And here we are today where everything is delivered in two hours. And I, and I think what's so interesting with, with crypto in particular is just the like, okay, well, first it's a database and the database is not the same as SQL. And so therefore it can't work. 
and then it's cryptography, but it does this in a centralized way, and it's decentralized, so it can't work. And they they look at it in the and this very minor way, and that's this sort of technical buzzsaw to make the whole thing go away, which was, in my life, the people that did that the most were the telephone companies and the internet. And, and they just could not get past, they were literally running the internet on their networks, and at the same time explaining how it could never work. Okay, so... I want to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, so Brian, I was at a dinner recently with a lot of, let's say, a lot of famous people in technology. And, you know, and we're talking about sort of very notable... That's some weird flex there. And we're talking about <laughs> notable incidents in technology, you know, from last year. And the single most referred to incident, and, you know, uh, and I think a lot of more than one person, you know, spoke of how jealous they were that you could do this was your post and kind of statement um, around Coinbase being a mission-driven company. So, and I know you've been, you know, you've talked about this quite a bit, but I'm kind of curious, could you just lay out, like, what happened leading up to that, you know, what the actual post was about? And yeah, and, what and why, like, and why, why did you publish the post? What were you trying to get at while publishing it? Yeah, so happy to talk about it. I, I mean, it's funny, even to this day, it's been like a year and a half or more at this point. And I think still to this day, this is the thing people want to talk to me about at dinner parties, you know, for, Fortune 500 CEOs and whatever it's. So I didn't really set out to do this as some, you know, big statement. I it was sort of reluctantly dragged this actually, because, you know, basically we, we created, there, this issue was bubbling up inside the company for, you know, six months or 12 months where increasingly we were getting questions at town halls and things like that that in my mind were just completely unrelated to the actual product and the company and the mission that we were building. And they were more and more about broader societal issues. I think when a company is small, you know, you're Dunbar's number or you're 300 people or 400 yeah. people, you can basically kind of know who everybody is and you all kind of feel like one team. And then as companies get bigger, you know, you have different offices in different locations or you go remote or you get to beyond a certain size where this, I think humans are inherently tribalistic, right? So they start to, if you don't have a strong competitor you're going against or whatever bigger mission in the world, you have these internal factions and people start to say, you know, I'm not like on the Coinbase team, I'm on Coinbase Finance or I'm on Coinbase New York or I'm on Coinbase NFT or whatever. And so anyway, internally, we started to have another one of these little tribes develop, which was we're the employees and you're management. Okay. So the first time that yeah. had really happened was maybe when we were around, I don't know, 600 people or something. And so we started to get these uncomfortable questions about broader societal issues, things which, you know, frankly, I didn't feel very qualified to give opinions on. And it almost felt like I started, I started really dreading these town halls, these open mic Q and A's because, you know, I'd get put on the spot and like, I, I didn't really have good answers for these things. So this all kind of culminated with, this was around the time of BLM and, and the George Floyd riots and things like that. And he put us on the spot and kind of at the Q and A and said, you know, are you, is Coinbase going to publicly um, support BLM? And, you know, I basically said, we're looking into that. I don't have an answer for you today. And they sort of pressed further with, again, with the open mic, right? And kind of said, that's not good enough. I need to know, are we going to support it or not? And I said, to be determined, like I haven't looked into it yet, right? And at that point, you know, a large number of employees basically closed their laptops and walked out. It was a virtual walkout because we were in the middle of pande uh, pandemic, wow. but I had never just, I had never experienced this before. You know, like, I've, I don't know how many people actually walked out. It was probably three or 400 or something like that. And so we kind of all got together as an executive team and, and said, well, what should we do? We gotta get people back to work. We had our head of DNI there. And I remember asking him, you know, 
okay, so tell me about BLM. What is it? Is it just supporting X or is there other political movements here associated with it? And I think they gave me the best answer they could in the moment. I decided to put out a tweet saying we support BLM to get everybody back to work, but I really didn't feel good about it after doing it. And I think as the weeks ticked by, I started to feel like we're, we're something's fundamentally broken here. We're just, we're not on the same page. Like in my mind, we're all here to accomplish our mission, which is to increase economic freedom in the world. And I think crypto is this unique technology to go do that. It's gonna be incredibly good for humanity. There's all these amazing downstream positive effects to, to economic freedom. But what does Coinbase have to do with p- police brutality or whatever, these other major mm-hmm. issues in the world, which are incredibly important, but like, why are they walking out? You know, so I, it, it didn't make sense. And I realized that there was a disconnect that had been forming. I went to go read a bunch of books about this. And I had heard people talking about this tangentially, how this kind of activism on college campuses, like Jonathan Haidt's book and people like that, like this had started to come into into companies. But I sort of discounted it, honestly, because I always thought, well, there's always been activism on college campuses and it doesn't really, I, I didn't, I hadn't seen it. And when I went to go back and watch some of the videos that had spurned a lot of this, I was recognizing the language in, in the way that people were mm-hmm. coming to me as a CEO and talking about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is literally the same thing. And so at that point, I started to write down my thoughts into this blog post. And I, I went through three or four drafts of it. I, oftentimes what I do, if I'm trying to figure something out, I try to write because it helps clarify my thinking. And the first few drafts, I didn't like it. It didn't sound, it, it didn't make any sense. It sounds like Steven does the same thing. And finally I wrote mm-hmm. this draft and I started to circulate it to the board and the exec team and some of the VPs on our team. And they and some of the people on our team came to me and were like, do not post this. Oh my gosh. Like um, <laughs> this, you know, this is gonna be a terrible thing for the company. There people told me, you know, you will never hire another like URM underrepresented minority person at this company if you do this. And you know, I so I went to go talk to some of our employee resource groups about this, and I was like, this felt weird to me. How does it feel to you? Like, what's the most important thing about, you know, for you working here? And, you know, they basically told me things like, you know, we want to be respected at work. We want to learn. We want to grow in our careers. We want to, and, and it was like nothing to do with this activism stuff. And so I started to develop this theory that there's actually a very small group of people in the organization, maybe one to 5%, something like that, that are really believing that it's their view or their their job to sort of hold the company's feet to the fire to pivot the company towards these issues, which they feel are important. But I started to believe by going and talking to some of the employee groups, like in, in small sessions, this is ac- this is actually not a widely held view. It's it, internally, if you looked at our Slack and our Q&A, like it, it was probably 60, 70, 80% of questions at town halls. But I realized this was kind of like the tyranny of the 1% or something. It was, it was a small mm-hmm. group of people and, and other people may have felt uncomfortable like I did, but they didn't want to speak up against it because they were afraid of being called racist or whatever. And so this, you know what, the, the, the real turning point, which made me do it, which ordinarily I would not, I'm a relatively conflict avoidant person. I, and I don't like taking stands like on big tribalism issues at all. I, I think there's a reasonable middle ground for all of these things. The thing that made me actually post it was I was like, I don't think the job as CEO is fun anymore, right? Like I, I basically don't want to come in and have to walk on eggshells around everybody and like feel, you know, like I'm being, having to answer all the hardest societal problems in society when we're, tr- we're supposed to be focused on this other thing. So I was like, yeah. either this is now the job of being a CEO is just this in our modern era, in which case I don't think I want to be a CEO or they're the wrong people in the company and I got to get them out. And I talked to a couple of friends about it and they were like, look, this is your company. Like if you don't like what they're doing, like, you know, 
find a way to get them out and move the company in the direction you want to go in. Um, because it would be a damn shame if you like left Coinbase right now. You know, you've been working on this thing eight or nine years and okay, you could start some other company, but like these things have compounding returns. You know, after eight or nine, eight or nine okay. years, you have you have certain resources and you're a certain size, you can now tackle bigger projects. And like, they're like, what is the next decade going to look like? And the third decade after that. And so basically I slept on it and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to leave this company. Like if, if, and so if either I got to go or they got to go, it means they got to go. And so I did post it. It was stressful for a few weeks. You know, we got lots of negative press, stuff like that. We offered exit packages to the employees who weren't on board with it. And so, and I was, I was literally like almost on the verge of tears as I was presenting this to the company. Cause I was like, I knew how much this was going to piss people off. And yeah, 5% of people, 5% of employees took the exit package within, I'd say within like a month or so, it turned out to be net positive in, in terms of like people started applying to the company who were like, that's the environment I want to work in. A bunch mm-hmm. of people left who, you know, were frankly very influenced by the headlines. They were like, I kind of don't feel that I kind of agree with you, Brian, but like my fa- my friends and family are all like pinging me, telling me how I can work at this terrible company because of all the headlines who, you know, basically if people still believe like mainstream media headlines, it's hard to sort of change their, their view. So yeah, I'd say, after a month or so, it turned out to be very positive, uh, you know, and I'd, I'd say a year in or so, it's, it's, it turned out to be one of the greatest things I'd ever done for the company in almost a kind of a contrarian way. So it was a lot of interesting lessons there. And it was a good leadership moment for me to basically say, you know what, if I really want to do something and it feels authentic, I should just do it, even if it's if, even if some percentage of people are not going to like it. Wow. Um, well, for, amazing. I mean, like that's, you know, that last several minutes, I think there are so many founders, you know, who probably you know, who probably can learn from that. You know, you, right at the beginning of this, you said something very interesting. I, mean, I, I know so many founders and CEOs who ask me about your post, and I'm sure you get asked about it all the time. What do you think is stopping others from, I don't know, some people have kind of done this maybe more silently, and they, they've started to use the term mission-driven, which I think is, you know, which really a phrase which came from that, signal. Book, that, yeah. that blog post of yours, really. But what do you think is stopping more CEOs, especially if maybe more older, more established companies from doing this? Because I know they want to, but they don't seem to be able to. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I think there's there's no one right way to run a company. So I do think some of the CEOs that are sort of publicly embracing social activism as part of the company, they, they're true believers. Like they just believe that's the right way to run a company and, you know, more power to them. I do think there's a whole other set of CEOs, probably the majority of them, honestly, who they would rather not be in this position but they mm-hmm. don't feel like they have a choice. And so your question is kind of like, I don't know, how could they get to where, where I am or something like that? <laughs> Look, I think there, yeah. might be, there might be a simpler way for them to get there that's not quite as dramatic. Because I think basically what th- they're afraid of being called a racist or you know, having, getting canceled or whatever these kind of f- fake tactics are that people do, right? I actually feel like a much freer person now that I'm, I'm, not, I'm just like not as scared of bad press. Like it, it really didn't matter. So it was like this boogeyman and like people wrote all the scariest stuff and like the company emerged like more, more healthy. And so it actually gave me like a really healthy disdain for sort of negative press. But I think, you know, so there may be a way to do it that's not quite as dramatic. Like I, I have talked to CEOs that are in this camp of saying like, okay, well, let's create a new value around mission driven and and start to chip away at it. And maybe you have... attrition this quarter, and then you have 2% next quarter, you're going to have people, you know, you don't have to tear off the bandit all at once. Although honestly, it was probably a little bit easier in hindsight, but I get why it's scary for people. 
you can you can also just look really closely at performance management and you know oftentimes if somebody like really is that passionate about broader societal issues and they're trying to make that a part of the workplace they're just there's only so many hours in the day you can't be like trying to do these other things and get so much work done and so you know typically the people that are that passionate about something outside of the company's mission in the office just aren't getting as much done and so strictly from a good performance management process you'll automatically um, eliminate that piece from the company. I think there are some companies starting to look at people's social media and stuff like that before they they hire them in. And if, is, you know, look, talk to your lawyers about that. Like if, if it's aligned to the values of the company, it, it's probably something that can be done. But yeah, I think this is also a lot harder for non-founder CEOs. So there is something really powerful about the idea of, you know, I, I built Coinbase from really just I was the only employee and I had my in my laptop and it was like me and a laptop mm. in my apartment. Right. So I, in some ways, I know that I can build it again. Right. Like if five, 10, 15, like 50 percent of employees left or something or even in worst case, it goes back to being me and my laptop or like I know I can just I can know I can do it again because I did it. And so, you know, if you come in as a professional CEO and you're in your job, this is where I feel for people like Satya and Sundar and like not only is it such a bigger company, um, to, to turning the Titanic, it just gets harder at that scale. But I don't know if, they, if they're planning to ever have like another career after this or something, they may not feel like they have the moral authority to come in and say, look, I founded this company and this is not what it's about. And so if you're not mm -hmm. on board with this, you, you need to leave. I think that's harder for a non-founder CEO. That's, that's one theory. But, you know, look, there's no reason why they can't do it. That's just purely in people's heads. You know, it's, it's so interesting because... I hear everything you're saying. And, you know, when we, when Shriram and I started working about 15 years ago or so, you know, we had this culture, like Google, I think, started this whole thing of like, bring your whole self to work. And it was like, really okay to do that, where you basically like, work there, but your friends were there, you, you know, you get your haircuts there, you get like, whatever, like everything happened at work. And so it was, never meant as like, you know, bring your political views or socioeconomic views into work, but it was like basically bring your whole self into work. And I guess this is a question for all of you, not just Brian, where did you ever anticipate from like a decade ago where, you know, we had this as like bring your whole self to work to where we are now, where companies have to like actively raise their hand and say, we are mission driven, which essentially means, no, please don't bring your whole self to work. Like we want to win here. And the viewpoints can be diverse, but we are here to do a specific role at this company kind of thing. Like, what do you think happened in this whole like decade of tech companies as such? I want to go to Mark on this because I think Mark has some spicy opinions on this whole topic. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, look, first of all, don't bring your whole self to work. Like, for, you know, God damn it. No, like leave your whole self at home. Like <laughs> when you get up in the morning, like take your whole set, take all the parts of you that aren't professional, like park them in the closet in your bedroom right? Take your professional self to work. Like, act like an adult. Like, go to work as an adult. Go to work as a professional, <laughs> right? Like, it's not that complicated. You know, somehow businesses ran for 100 years before Google, and somehow, like, they all got, actually did pretty well without the take your whole self to work thing. And look, the reason is because, like, everybody, if you bring your whole self to work, like, everybody has to put up with your whole self. And, like, who wants to do that, right? Like, nobody wants to put up with everybody else's whole self at work. Like, the, the whole point of a professional work environment is that it's a professional work environment, the obligation of the management of that environment, right, to the employees is that it's a professional place to work. And right, by the way, professional means a lot of things, right? It means no harassment. It means no, like, there's a lot of bullshit that's just not allowed. And one of the things that's just not allowed in a professional workplace is people hectoring each other about unrelated politics, 
Like it's just, mm -hmm. it, this was just, this was just, a, this was just a crazy idea. And then, and then, you know, what happens, right, is everybody templates off the biggest success, right? And so everybody's like, you know, Google's this huge success. You know, they, they become this, you know, giant cash generating machine, you know, and full credit to them for that. And everybody's like, well, you know, okay, if we're going to start the next great company, what, you know, let's just do what Google did. And so they template yeah. off that. The, the, the problem is, right, the formula for building a Google, right, is step one, start with the search monopoly, right? Like start with the monopoly <laughs> position in the world's, you know, kind of most important like online market, right? Start, start with a business that generates like, you know, whatever, $100 billion in profit off of like a billion and a half dollars of expense. Like start with that, right? And then, and then come up with your clever like HR strategies, right? That, look, if you have the Google search business, like it's free massages for everybody for the rest of their lives. Like it, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, every different, it's the kombucha bar with 18 different kinds of kombucha. Like it's the, Everybody can sit around and argue about politics and, and, and have protests. And, like, you can, if you have the search monopoly, like, you can do all that stuff. Like, but if you're, like, a normal, like, company run by, like, a mortal founder like the rest of us, like, that's just a horrible idea. And so I think we've been through this just, like, frankly, hallucinatory period where you think that they can just, temp they, can, they, can, they can templatize off of Google or whatever other company. You know, if there's a saving grace to a big, you know, kind of market crash, downdraft, you know, economic, you know, whatever event like's happening right now with, with tech stocks, like, you know, one of, one of the silver linings is this will be a rationalization. I mean, I think people will start to realize, like, they need to start to run their companies professionally. One of my theories on this yeah, I is, guess, uh, sorry, go on. Go, Brian. Well, the only thing I was going to add was I, I think, you know, like a lot of things, bring your whole self to work, start it off, like, with really good intentions, right? Which is, yeah. it's like, there are people who just feel super uncomfortable. They feel like they have to pretend to be someone else or whatever, and it's not the right environment. And, and you know... When I I, I I certainly bought into this idea when I first heard it, you know, as a young CEO in Silicon Valley, I was like, of course, I want people to just be whoever they are and like show up to work and like they should all feel comfortable, of course, right? And, you know, unfortunately, some of these things that start off with really good intentions and they are a good idea, they get co-opted and they go on, they go further. So there, there's a difference between being able to show up and just be who you are and feel comfortable in your own skin. And, and then there's a difference between that and you know, showing up and trying to pressure the company to engage in your favorite, like political or, uh, you know, outside of work topic, that's, that's like totally different than being your, your, you know, showing up who you really are. So I think I, I like to phrase it a little bit more now that people say, like, bring your best self to work, don't bring your whole self to work. Or, you know, to Mark's point, I guess, bring your professional self to work. But anyway, I guess I just want to say a lot of these things that they have, I, I, I reject the extreme positions on either side, right? There's usually a reasonable middle ground, which is like, okay, like we shouldn't harass each other at work. Like we shouldn't be biased in our hiring process. Let's try to get great people and, you know, all different kinds of people, whatever. And those things, we should have employee resource groups, whatever, if they can add to the engagement of the company and, and not, you know, engage in activism or whatever. So there's reasonable middle grounds here. What happens is that if you, if you don't actually have a line where it's like, we're going to do the good parts of this and no, you're not allowed to go further than that. We're just... If you, if, you, if you don't have a line and we're just accepting of all ideas here and everything can be discussed and then you get you get chaos, essentially. One last bit on this. I think part of my theory on this is that some of it is driven by the tools that we use in the workplace because it is so easy to hijack emojis, to hijack uh, you know channels on you know Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is that you use. So you can have a small set of people like act you know as if a lot more of them in number than they actually are like i have a friend who i won't name who says a lot of ceos are kind of falling prey to running the company by emoji reactions which mm -hmm. is you know you kind of get used to the positive emoji reactions and you start worrying about the negative emoji reactions as opposed to how actually people feel which i think is an interesting point okay 
I want to switch gears, and this is actually a really fun part of switch gears too. So, Brian, if you look, I was looking at the last few weeks of just Coinbase product launches, and you know, I was trying to just list out some of them, right? And like the wallet with, with MPC, you know, Coinbase NFT in beta, Coinbase Pay, the Institute. So it feels like Coinbase has been on like quite the tear, you know, uh, at least from just kind of like, launches. Yeah, at least from like just seeing all the amazing product launches, right? Yeah. And it seems like it's kind of like almost like a new era for the company. You know, for, for many years, I think a lot of people here would know Coinbase for, hey, this is where I buy my crypto, this is where I store my crypto. And there's a bunch of other new stuff, you know, which is just launched, right? So talk to us about, I think, one, just kind of the launches, you know, how it kind of like, you know, how it kind of falls into the picture of where Coinbase is headed. Yeah, well, so whenever crypto goes through a big growth period like it did over the last couple of years, you know, we tend to bring on a lot of new people. We have a lot more resources. We, we try different new initiatives in our 70, 2010 resource allocation. And so, you know, you basically start various initiatives and investments. Sometimes a bunch of them happen all at once and it's, it's actually completely random. But I think like the thing that I keep thinking about as you as you mentioned all that, it's basically like we've been, we've added all this new headcount and we need to think about how to operate efficiently at this new size. So when you're when you're just one have one product and you're a relatively small company, you're 300 people or whatever, you know, you can move very fast because you all know who who each other are. There's one product. It's like it's it's not a giant too crazy unwieldy code base. And every company goes through this experience, I think, where you start to have a couple of different products and you get this kind of N squared problem. You add more people. Now there's kind of like coordination headwinds. There's more, you get these kind of messages bubbling up from the company about like, oh, it's we, we're in a vetocracy where anybody can veto my thing, you know, compliance vetoed it, legal vetoed it, you know, <laughs> whatever, finance vetoed it. And so you need to figure out how to operate better at this new scale, right? And I think basically what, without oversimplifying it, what companies end up doing is they push down decision-making to have clear owners of these different things. You can move to more from a purely functional org to like product groups or business units. And people think about, there's all this debate about different org structures at different sizes. I think that this, the common theme is like, you got to have clear owners push that are not like the CEO or even the exec team, or maybe even one layer down, push it down into the org. So everybody knows that's the person in charge. It's they need to get input from everybody around them, all the relevant parties, but it's ultimately their job to decide and they're held accountable to the ultimate metrics of that, that product and growth. So look, I think Coinbase grew really quick in the last couple of years. We, we've probably 3x headcount in, in 2021. We've been growing really fast so far this year. And I think we need to actually slow hiring and take a bit of a breather here to figure out how to ingest all of this, this new headcount to think about how can we really operate efficiently at this scale. So I'm glad we're doing more and more things, but yeah, it's like every company that's, that's growing, we need to make sure they're all coherent and have clear owners of each of those so they can move without me being a bottleneck. There's something interesting about the role of Coinbase in crypto, right? Because here's crypto, which kind of sprung from this decentralized, you know, no one single person or entity has power over us kind mm -hmm. of ethos. Mm -hmm. And then here you folks are, you know, probably one of the, you know, best known brands, you know, you know, probably like a really large central institution, which has a lot of people using it and always sort of influence. How do you kind of think about that? Because those, are those two things in tension? How do you see the role of Coinbase within this broader crypto ethos? Yeah, so I think this is this is one of those things that's kind of widely, maybe even misunderstood. So I think Coinbase's you know, core product today is the app that it, it is a centralized app and we're storing people's crypto in a centralized way. But even there, you know, people don't necessarily have lock-in to Coinbase. If you want to move your crypto somewhere else, you can move it to any other crypto app or exchange out there. So that's actually much better than, say, you know, 
like if you have a terminal on the Visa network and you want to move to a different provider, like, well, you're stuck with Visa. There's only one company who can give you access to the Visa network, Visa. But there's many companies who can give you access to the Bitcoin network. So decentralization is a spectrum. So even that app, I think there's there's lower switching costs, which is good for customers. But let's go even a step further. So we have also a self-custodial wallet. People often don't really remember this or give us credit for this, but we have really one of the most popular self-custodial wallets. It's it's actually the number one downloaded one in the US as far as we know. And so that's allowing people to store their own crypto on their own devices. The, te- the UI and the technology behind that is getting better and better where, you know, the, like recovery mechanisms and things like that. So that if you lose your phone, your, your, your crypto is not gone. And there's, there's various like innovative solutions to that we can talk about. But Basically, long story short, Coinbase is fully embracing decentralization. And yes, we built an early, very successful business helping people get fiat into crypto, which had to be a little bit more centralized. But now that people have crypto, increasingly more and more of our activity is around people doing crypto to crypto, not fiat to crypto. And so Mm. we're just making it as seamless as we can once they have crypto to then actually start to use it, to store it in a self-custodial way, to use NFTs, you know, to, to use DeFi. We've natively integrated like decentralized exchanges, for instance, in a big way, which, you know, people always ask me, well, doesn't that kind of compete with your centralized exchange? And I guess so a little bit, but we don't really care. That's where we feel like the future is going more and more decentralization. And so we're going to embrace that because that's what our customers want. You know, there's something profound here, which I think a lot of people, even really smart technical people don't understand about crypto. A few months ago, there was a post from Moxie you know, one of the, you know, the key people behind Signal, which went very viral. And I think one of his, and look, he's a really smart, accomplished technologist. And I think one of his points was that, you know, crypto kind of suffers from centralization. And I think he pointed to various companies which you kind of have to use to get to crypto. Mm-hmm. But I don't think crypto is about that. I think it's about having an option to exit, you know, the company and work with somebody else if you so choose. Like, for example, you know, when you talk about like Coinbase wallet, this, a lot of people may not know this. Every wallet in crypto today mostly supports BIP39. So you could copy paste the exact same seed phrase, you know, from Coinbase wallet into MetaMask or vice versa, and it just works, mm-hmm. right? I, by the way, I, you know, you know, I didn't know this until like sometime last year. So, you know, was a noob there. And I think there is a, something really powerful there, which we have lost in technology. Like today, for example, if you told some, me that, you know, I can switch my email provider, you know, I can switch from one client to another kind of using Gmail, I'm like, that kind of makes sense. But nobody asked like, hey, what if I need to switch from using Twitter to another social media platform? How will I take my social graph? And I think that it's, you know, I think crypto always have these central companies where you go through because they provide ease of use. It could be for regular customers. It could be for businesses providing APIs. But I think, the, you know, if you don't want to, you can always go straight to, you know, the ETH node or run your own node. You always have the option to exit. I think that is a profound point, which I think a lot of people wind up missing. I totally agree. Yeah. And I think Moxie brought up, Moxie's a friend, he, I, I loved talking to him about that post. And he brought up some good points, which is that we always talk about Web3. And I think a lot of the apps that are being built today are really kind of like Web 2.5 because they've decentralized some piece of it, maybe the token or the NFTs or something like that are decentralized, but they haven't decentralized the follower graph or, you know, like, I guess the way that a lot of the data is stored is sort of centralized. It's not always using IPFS or something like that where, where it could in the future. So I think Moxie looked at it and said, hey, look, Web3 has already been co-opted into 2.5. And I looked at it and said, hey, look, we're on 2.5 on the way to 3. <laughs> and so I just I, I think the tools are going to get better and better for decentralization. You know, look, we've already so we've already decentralized the tokens. That part is decentralized. The next thing is the identity, right? With like ENS and decentralized identity. That that part is now decentralized. IPFS allows us to store data in a decentralized way. And then 
you know, if you wanted to make a follower graph or something like that, we're seeing protocols come out like, I think it's called Lens Protocol. There's one example, for instance, but there's new protocols like this coming out all the time. Or how do we get reputation associated with that decentralized identity? That there's, I think somebody needs to make a protocol for that, right? Um, to get on-chain decentralization of like a FICO score equivalent or a reputation score associated with that DID. So it's basically moving more and more towards decentralization is my perception at this point. Maybe maybe in 50 years, it'll all get co-opted and, and it'll move to be centralized, but I, I don't really see that happening too much today. And I think it's interesting, I think a lot of founders and very interesting people working on, I think spectrums of decentralization, I think you mentioned Lens. I mean, you have Dan Romero work on Forecaster, for example, mm -hmm. um, lots of kind of different takes on what maybe a decentralized Twitter means. And I think a lot of it on the common theme, which is, you know, if I want to, how do I take my graph with me? You know, how do I take my content with me? Also, some people is ideological, right? I don't want to be censored. You know, I want to have the option for my content live out there and not have, you know, some set of people in San Francisco take my content down. And I think, I think for me personally, Web3 meets social is probably mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things happening right now. And, you know, there are a lot of things we are not public yet, and you'll probably see a lot more of them. So and maybe this is a good segue into just the future of crypto. Uh, actually, you know, you know, I think I wanted to ask, you know, Brian, like you know, last year, Coinbase went public. Now you're, you know, it's a, it's a part of Fortune 500. In retrospect, you know, would you should have Coinbase gone public at all? And I'm not assuming anything with the question. It's just something I wanted to ask you as a founder, you know, having been through the whole journey and like given where it's at, is it something that uh, you would have done if you had to go back in time and do it again? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's fair given the recent activity in the stock market where, you know, the market suddenly valued like free cash flow much higher than, you know, investing for growth and things like that. And, you know, I think there's a good argument to make that, you know, Coinbase is not really fully understood by public market investors yet. I think there's a small handful of public market investors who really understand what we're doing and what mm -hmm. the company's about. And actually, for a long time, we were basically trading almost exactly one to one with Bitcoin, which just told us that maybe Wall Street was treating it as a way to get exposure to Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but then it started trading like less than Bitcoin and it didn't, it didn't really make sense because overall our metrics, like we would gain share relative to other crypto companies in the quarter, but I would, it would, start, it would trade lower. So I, I don't think public market investors really fully have grokked most of them, the company yet, but at the same time, I don't really regret going public. I think it was the right call. There's, there's definitely benefits to it. I think it helped us with legitimacy. It helped us win a lot of new institutional clients. I mean, we're the, we're the largest institutional business out there for crypto. And many of them look to us as a public company that, you know, we have to pass higher control standards and audits and SEC approval and, and think to get public and things like that. So I think that helped us a lot. There's a legitimacy angle to it to be the first public crypto company. I can tell you that in this environment, it's certainly you know, the the private market for crypto companies has had some really high valuations. You know, we see these as well through Coinbase Ventures. And I think we were seeing investments happen from like at anywhere from like 20 to 100x revenue type things. And, mm -hmm. you know, Coinbase was trading as maybe like four or five x revenue or something. It's probably even less now. And so there, there's obviously like this huge gap. And so where is the truth? You know, it's probably it's somewhere in the middle, but we don't really know if it's 80, 20, one yeah. way or 50, 50. So that has made it more challenging for us to kind of go get some M&A deals done. I think there's still companies out there that are very willing to say, okay, what was our last 12 months revenue? What was Coinbase's last 12 months revenue? Let's just divide X over Y. And like, that's the percentage of company we want to own. Great. Th those are great ways to do deals in an M&A environment where the price of the shares could be very volatile. You don't really know what it's going to be by the time the deal closes, you know? So I think there's ways we can get that done. We have to be thoughtful about employee compensation too, because 
you know, mm-hmm. people come in and they and they get certain stock options or, and things like that. And of course, like up and down, it, it, we always try to encourage employees not to think about the short term and, and what is the long term perspective, just like we think about crypto more broadly. So net net, I would say, you know, it's it, there's has been some drawbacks to being a public company, but I would say net it has still been positive. And I think this is a very temporary moment where we're going to we're going to move through this and it's not really going to matter in five years at all. So, yeah, we're we're always moving forward. I don't really care what the, what the stock price is doing day to day, really. You know, on the note of being public, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, there was a tweet from Paul Graywall, who actually, by the way, I worked with at Facebook many years ago. And because I think, you know, you folks had a recent incident with your 10Q reporting. And I know you, you kind of wanted to talk about this too. And Paul made an interesting analogy about, I think, belt and suspenders or some fashion faux pas, which I totally did not get. <laughs> so could you talk to us about like, you know, what this is about? Yeah, well, I think the belt and suspenders is, is a legal term that they, they like to use. But yeah, so we had this disclosure that got added to our, our 10Q and it used some scary language as all the disclosures do. They're basically there to describe all the scary things that can happen to a company and just be very upfront about it. I think this was an interesting example where, you know, Shiram, I know you've seen this firsthand where we had a couple of sort of Twitter crypto influencers like tweeted about this with kind of the scariest interpretation you could possibly imagine. And sometimes like, Wait, you know, it, it takes a half truth to go viral. Scary and wrong? That seems, I've never heard that before. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. So look, I think on, the part that we messed up was we, we added a disclosure, which was scary. All of them are scary, but we probably should have identified how that would be interpreted by certain key customers, especially our institutional clients. That was on us. We, we probably didn't have the right review process, but I think Mostly what happened was, you know, a couple of tweets went out that sort of went viral because like if a half truth, a half truth can go viral, but the, the truth is often more nuanced and less interesting. So some of those went like semi-viral and then they got picked up by, you know, a small news media outlet and then they got picked up by a major media outlet. And so there was basically a, a little press cycle there for two or three days or something where everybody just decided, hey, now's the moment to panic. Like we're all going to have fear, uncertainty, and doubt and make wild speculation. And there, there was all these kind of crazy theories out there about like there being a bank run on Coinbase or something, which doesn't even make sense because we're not we're not a bank and we don't do fractional reserve lending. So there's no such thing as a run. You know, people were worried we were rehypothecating assets. It was, it was just like all these rumors and speculation. So I think it was it was a little bit of like a symptom of just where everybody's head was in, in the, that broader macro environment with everything coming down. There's like, oh my, fear, fear, fear. And it was yeah. kind of disappointing to me to see frankly like how fast a lie can run around the world before like the truth can even get its its shoes on and so there's always little drills that you go through as a as an entrepreneur where you're like okay crisis comes how do we put out a holding statement how do we try to put out the truth but of course sometimes anything you put out in those moments will just be interpreted in the worst way and uh you're oftentimes behind the scenes by the way trying to get to ground truth yourself because you know there's so many issues inside the company and you pull the right people you know, many CEOs may resonate with this idea, but you pull you pull the right people into the room and you're trying to reassure them. You're like, okay, don't I'm not blaming you. We're just trying to figure out what happened. And but of course they're mm-hmm. they're scared shitless. They've like now they're they got called into a meeting at 10 p.m. with the CEO and they think they're gonna get fired or something, and the whole Twitter is going nuts with all this stuff. And so you really have to try to calm people down and, and to seek truth because when they're in that sort of state, their their initial reaction is to try to be defensive and no, no, we thought of that and we didn't, this is not not gonna happen. And then you peel back the layer. Okay, well, you know, are you absolutely sure that's the case? Well, not a hundred percent. You know, <laughs> so it takes a while to uncover all these layers to figure out what actually happened inside the company too. So, anyway, that's what happened. I 
it was a huge distraction. I think we missed, there's a couple things we could have done better, but yeah, that's what happened. I think the TLDR is blame Twitter, I think is kind of the short version of what he said. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, there's so much mif- misinformation out there. I, I find it, it's a little bit funny that like mainstream media is so worried about misinformation on social media, but social media and mainstream media have like as much misinformation, equal amounts of misinformation as far as I can tell. So, and in fact, it usually, like mainstream media is downstream of social media. It's a lot of the stuff that mainstream media is picking up is just stuff they saw trending on Twitter. So it's a weird world. This is partly why I want to increasingly go direct to our audience and just, I encourage people to do that. If you're trying to figure out what actually is the truth, like go directly to the source and go read the 10Q, go read our financial statements, go look at my Twitter. Don't read someone's interpretation in the middle who is trying to sell advertising space or, or whatever they're trying to do. I love it. Uh, I mean, I think, Going to the source directly, you know, but, but, but I think you made a comment there, which I think I found so true. It's slightly off topic on crypto, but Twitter and social media so much shape mainstream discourse. Like when I was at Twitter, you know, I saw this pattern play out over and over again, where something would trend and it would trend because of a small set of people tweeted about it. It would become a moment. And then by the afternoon, it would become a thing, a story, a narrative. And then a lot of other people kind of have to respond to that. And, you know, this is where like Mark would basically say, you know, I'm to blame for a bunch of this, which we can maybe debate offline, but it's <laughs> definitely true. But I think going to the source directly, you know, and I honestly, that's kind of part of why we want to do this show, right? Which is kind of like a chance for us to talk directly to people and builders like you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe wait, one last story, right? I think one of the questions crypto often gets is, hey, how are people in the real world using it for positive social impact? And, you know, we always kind of have like various examples, but I think with last, uh, well, not last year, like a few months ago with the Ukraine, I think you kind of saw an example of how crypto could have like real positive, real world impact. I know you, 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 you've spoken about this, you've had a lot about this. Like talk to us about what happened in Ukraine with crypto and then like what this maybe kind of means in terms of like, you know, how people can actually use crypto. Yeah, well, I think this was the first time we saw a government actually reach out to the world and say, hey, we want donations in crypto. So that was that was pretty cool to see. And I think they raised maybe like $200 million in a, in a month or something. And a lot of it was like really tiny amounts from people all over the world. So that was a really cool use case for, for crypto. You know, people, they used to ask me all the time, like when are the use cases gonna be there for crypto? And I, I don't really get that question anymore because uh, I think there's so many examples now where it's moved far beyond like, you know, basically crypto when it first came up was being traded speculatively, right? It was a new asset class. And, and then we got to see all these new kinds of financial services like DeFi and, you know, borrowing and lending happening and earning yield and, and decentralized exchanges. And now we're seeing it kind of be like this whole new application platform, Web3. So it, it's sort of like asking, well, what are the people going to use the internet for? It's like, it's almost like, what kind of applications are they not going to use the internet for? It's almost a better question. So we're seeing people make games and decentralized social media and decentralized identity and new types of entities with DAOs and, you know, creative people are finding new ways to get their work out there and find fan bases and with music and, and, and film and all this kind of thing. So I, I think it's, it's kind of, it, this is why people sort of say it's the next version of the internet. It is web three. I think most applications on the internet today, you can imagine them being built again in the future, incorporating this decentralized component or uh, some aspect of crypto, whether that's a token to build their community or to accept payments from people all over the world or to pay out their community or to raise money or to eventually go public. And so in the same way that most startups use AI in some way, shape or form, or they use the internet in some way, shape or form, I think most startups are going to be using crypto in some way, shape or form. And that's what makes it 
one of the most exciting technology changes happening in the world right now. I, I couldn't agree more. Mark, by the way, I know that line about this being the next internet. Uh, by the way, Mark and Chris Dixon had this amazing podcast the other day on Bankless, which I highly recommend people watch too. But I know you said this. Like, Mark, why do you think crypto and Web3 is the next internet? Yeah, it's because it, it, in the short version, the, the, the long version, I go full Castro and it, the, the speech takes six hours and I pound my shoe on the table, but it's already past, uh, past 11. So I'll, I'll just, I'll do the, I'll do the thumbnail sketch. Now, if you want to hear more about this, as True Rep says, we talked about it. Castro, on the table, wait. Castro, Castro, I guess, yeah, Castro was the, the six hour speech. Khrushchev was the shoe on the table, but if you combine them, if you combine them, you get me. So yeah, so uh, the short version is just look, crypto is the other half of the internet. It's it, the, the internet is legendarily an un, un, untrusted network. The thing that made the internet work so well is that it was an un, untrusted network. And by untrusted, I mean, you know, permissionless. It basically, it, right, anybody famously could could plug into the internet. Anybody to, to this day in the world can put any computer they want on the internet. It can communicate with all the other computers. And then anybody can build any application they want. By the way, anybody can claim to be anybody they want. You know, you can, you know, it's the, the famous New Yorker cartoon um, on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog. Right. Like that, that continues to be the case. And, and, and that's led to this, like, just like wonderful level of like anarchism and, you know, in the, in the best sense, anarchism in the sense of like enormous creativity. But there's just there's been a pervasive lack of trust this entire time. And you've just you've never had a validated way to establish trust, an, an, an Internet native way to establish trust. And that, that could be trust in identity of who somebody actually is. It's trust in, 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 in money and in economic value. It's trust in being able to establish contracts. It's trust in being able to have, you know, Internet native financial instruments, Internet native ownership. Right. The kind of the concept of title and provenance, you know, which is very common for, for ownership of assets in the real world. You've never had an internet native way to do that. And so, the, the, you know, th this is the technology wave that to me, you know, as somebody involved in kind of the first half, you know, this, this looks like this is the wave that can sort of finish the job and kind of and, and do the second half and have the internet be basically put a trust layer on top of the untrusted network and, and kind of uh, kind of solve the whole problem. I love it. That was quite a thumbnail sketch. Okay. All right. Final, final thing, Brian, we have a lot of young people who watch the show, a lot of young people yeah. from very different parts of the world, a lot of our audiences in India and you know, not here in the US. If you're a young person, a teenager, you know, maybe you're a coder builder or just anybody you're interested in crypto, you know, what would you recommend that they do to get started? Well, let's see. There's lots of good online resources, of course. You can learn about how to write your first smart contract and publish that. You can think about how to write a new protocol. I'm hoping somebody publishes a protocol that creates reputation scores for decentralized identities. That would be a cool one, just as a side. <laughs> you know, I think, obviously, I, I can give a big plug for Coinbase here. Like, one of the best ways to learn how to create a crypto startup is to join a, a really exciting crypto company. And so I think Coinbase has probably spawned more crypto entrepreneurs and startups than any other crypto company, which is something I'm really proud of. Let's see. You know, it's sort of just like any, how do you learn anything? You just, you learn by doing, right? Like there's only so much, you can, you can read a lot of books, you can talk to smart people and get get mentored and stuff like that. But ultimately you have to start doing something. Action produces information. And so almost always the thing you'll go do is not the right thing, but that's fine because once you do it, you'll realize what, how you could have iterated to make it better. And then you'll do that thing and the next thing, and the next thing. So there was lots of ideas that I tried when I was learning how to code or build startups and most of them didn't work, but I just kept doing more of them. And eventually one of them worked, which turned out to be Coinbase. There was probably 10 other startup ideas I, I did along the way that, that didn't work out. And so, yeah, just start shipping stuff and seeing how people react to it. That's awesome. Love it. I love it. That's why I start shipping stuff. Love it. Okay, <laughs> folks, this has been absolute, absolute blast. Probably one of the most intense conversations we have. Can't thank you enough. Mark, Steven, for always showing up. And, you know, Mark, we'll, we'll drink something next time. 
and uh brian you know, yeah but yeah and brian <laughs> thank you so much for just you know just being so open with us on you know coinbase and you know like we, i just love what you do with the crypto community and you know just thank you so much for being on the show this is amazing thank you for having me yeah it's awesome what you guys are doing okay. too just getting more of this content out there so it's awesome thank you so cool and thanks everyone for watching and I listening know, in. i know it's late wherever you are it's, it's either very late or very early so thank you Thanks so much. We'll be back soon. Thanks everyone. Good night. Good morning. See you. Bye-bye.